listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Good morning. My name is Cody King. Uh, I'm the uh, founding and lead pastor at Redemption Calvary in Commerce City, Colorado. So if you don't know where that is, you probably just drive by it, um, and and that's why you don't know where it's at. But uh, my family and I moved there about six years ago to plant the church. I'm here today with my wife, Micah, and our three of our four daughters. Yes, I did say daughters. I live in an estrogen ocean. You can pray for me. Um, And so it's uh, it's amazing. We, we We love our girls, but it is they are girls, and so uh, you know you know what that's like if you have daughters of your own. Uh, but uh, we're we're blessed to be able to be here this morning. It's such a privilege to be able to share God's word with you. Uh, Pastor Nick is uh, someone who I respect and value so much, and so grateful for his friendship. Uh, we we met a, a while back when I was uh, you know in the middle of beginning and planting our church, and uh, we actually really connected a little bit more deeply through the Expositors Collective. Uh, and so that's been w- one of the ways that we are able to, to connect more deeply and uh, in our relationship. And most recently, my wife and I actually were in Las Vegas serving at that, uh, pr- this uh, past Expositors Collective. So it's just a tremendous time to be able to, to spend together. Uh, this morning, we're going to be in the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bible, open it up to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. And I have a message this morning that I've titled, Overcoming a troubled heart, overcoming a troubled heart. Has anybody, anybody ever had a troubled heart? Anybody know what that feels like? You don't have to raise your hand. Either, uh, you know, they, they say that uh, trouble is kind of like motorcycle riders. There's only two types. There's those who have been down and those who are going down, right? If you know anything about motorcycles, then that's kind of the way that it goes, which is why my wife won't let me buy one. And so, uh, you know, trouble is one of those things for us as well. You are either in trouble currently, coming out of trouble recently, or headed into trouble in the very near future. It's just part of the facts of life. It's one of those things that is part of our lives on this side of eternity. And you're like, oh, I'm so glad I came to church today. Thanks for telling me that I'm going to be in trouble. It's just one of those things. And if we, if we don't address it, if we don't think about it, if we don't purpose in our hearts to think about it from God's perspective then when it comes, we're, we're overwhelmed. And, and that's what Jesus has to talk to us about today. You see, the, the reality is that we have a troubled heart for lots of different reasons. Maybe something happened in life that just knocks the wind out of you. You know what that feels like? Maybe somebody, you don't really know why, but they just have it out for you. For no, no explained reason, they just want to take you down. They just want to make life miserable for you. Or maybe you have a troubled heart because it's a consequence of your own sinfulness. That, that you've participated in something that God says we don't, we don't do that. We exclude that from our lives. And you've thought, you know what, I'm just going to roll the dice and see how this thing goes. And, and the troubled heart comes as a result. Like David said in Psalm 51.3, my sin is always before me. And whatever it is, whatever reason it is that we have a troubled heart, Jesus addresses that for us in John chapter 14. And so today our big idea, the thing we're going to be looking at together in John 14 verses 1 through 14 is this. Your heart is not the victim of circumstance. Your heart is not the victim 
of circumstance. And we've got to get that thought in our minds, otherwise we run the risk of allowing trouble to overcome us and overwhelm us. So let's read together John chapter 14, verses 1 through 14, and then we'll go back through and break it down. I'm going to read all of it together in one big chunk, and then we'll, we'll break it down together. It says this, John 14, 1, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And when where I go, you know, and the way you know. Verse 5, then Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known that my father, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is sufficient for us. Verse nine, Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the father. So how can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father and the father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. God, we thank you for the opportunity to open it and to see what it is that you have to say to us. And we pray that you would help us to be able to understand, not just to understand the ink on the page, but to understand you, to draw closer to you, to know you better, to dive deeper into relationship with you. And the result would be that our lives are transformed by your great power. And so we commit this morning to you saying thank you for it, and we ask for your, your uh, spirit to be moving among us, to give us the courage to follow you faithfully, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Today, this morning, as we look at John chapter 14, verses 1 through 14, what we're going to be doing is breaking it down into five parts, all right? The first part being verse 1, have faith in Jesus. Then verses 2 through 3, have eternity in Jesus. Verses 4 through 6, have hope in Jesus. Verses 7 through 11 have knowledge in Jesus, and then verses 12 through 14 have busyness in Jesus. Not business. Some of you are like, yes, that's a word from the Lord. I'm going to start my business. No, busyness in Jesus. So that's, uh, that's what we're going to be looking at together today in these five different areas. Now, as we look at John 14, it's important for us to grab a little bit of John 13 in order to understand what Jesus is talking about. Context is king. This is a massive concept for us to grasp in terms of being able to interpret the Bible correctly. And so in John chapter 13, Jesus is celebrating the Passover with his apostles, with the disciples. Can you imagine celebrating Passover with Jesus? I mean, just in the Jewish culture, in the Jewish tradition, this is something that they would have done every year. This is something that they would just have lots of excitement and tradition surrounding, kind of like the way that we celebrate Thanksgiving or Christmas. There's a lot of different traditions that we have, a lot of different things that we do, and we just look forward to it and prepare for it, and they're sitting down to have this meal, and they, they get together with Jesus, having Passover with him. And then in the middle of dinner, Jesus drops three massive bombs on these guys. 
And these, these massive bombs that he drops on these guys, they take the whole dinner from celebration to discouragement and worry and fear and anxiety, from celebration to concern. You see, Jesus talks about Judas's disloyalty. One of you is going to betray me. Jesus also talks about his uh, own departure. Not only Judas's disloyalty, but his own departure. And then thirdly, he talks about Peter's denial there in chapter 13. And as these guys are, are in the middle of, I'm sure they're just reeling over this, that all of these things are coming into their minds and they're wondering what in the world are we going to do? And they're in a situation that's not going as well as they had hoped. I mean, put yourself in their shoes. When Jesus called them, he said, hey, I want you to leave everything. You know, there were some of that were fishermen and they had businesses. And they, Jesus said, I want you to leave your business and I want you to come follow me. And now Jesus, as the CEO of their new company, he says, hey guys, I'm leaving. And they're like, well, what does that do for our business? How does this all work? Because now you're leaving. Am I now unemployed? How, how is this all gonna go? And I'm sure their minds are just reeling with lots and lots of different things that they're not sure about. And Jesus says, in, this, in the middle of this situation, Jesus says in 14.1, Look at it there. He says, let not your heart be troubled. Do you see that first word? Let. Let not your heart be troubled. And when Jesus says this word let, he's inferring to the idea that this is under your control. That there are some things that are under their control. There are a lot of things, a lot of situations that they're going to be going through that are not in their control. But there are some things that are going to be in their control. And here's a key concept for us to grasp in this. When you're faced with what you cannot control, it's vital that you do what you can control. You're going to be faced with many situations throughout life that you just, you're in the situation. You can't control it. You would never pick it. You would never go down that road. But there you are. You're in the middle of the situation. And that situation has the tendency and the opportunity to shipwreck your life and to shipwreck your faith. And if you're not careful, you'll let it. But it's vital that in the middle of those that we do what we can Control. Anybody wake up today with the idea of saying, I just really want to destroy my life this, today. That, that sounds like a great idea. Anybody have that thought? That was not an active thought in your mind this morning? No, I don't think about that. The, the only thing I think about is I want to bless me. I just, I wake up with thinking, how do I bless me? And, and I'm also thinking, how do I get you to bless me? Because I'm always on my mind. I, I love me a, a lot. And I hope you love me as well. Isn't that the way that we think, right? We're just constantly infatuated with ourselves. You see, pain's not a part of my plan because I can't control it. And because I can't control it, I don't put it into my plan. The heart of the matter is, it's a matter of the heart. And when you lose heart, you get into big trouble. And so Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled because the, the thing, the key factor is, they might lose heart. And when you lose heart, it gets you into big trouble because it opens the door to laziness. It opens the door to cowardice and it opens the door to sin. So we've got to be careful to guard that within our lives. In fact, uh, Proverbs 4.23 says it like this, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. Everything in your life comes out of your heart, and if you're not faithful to keep it, if you're not focusing on keeping it and paying attention to what's going on and just allowing it to do whatever it's going to do, then you're going to be led into all sorts of crazy things. You see, Jesus calls them to refocus their attention off of their problems, off of the issues, and on to him. Because a troubled life does not automatically mean a troubled heart. A troubled life doesn't automatically mean 
a troubled heart. And so it gives us some refocuses to, to have. So refocus number one there in verse one is to have faith in Jesus. Verse one says, let not your heart be troubled. Why, how, how do we do this? One, he, Jesus says, you believe in God, believe also in me. You see, Jesus here begins with calling them to believing faith in him. He says, stop looking at the problem, stop looking at the issue, stop looking at the situation that you're in and get your eyes off of that and look up to me. Notice the way that Jesus says this. He actually equates himself with God. I, I don't know if you have a, um, you know, a habit of writing in your Bible. I definitely do. It's one of the things I do in my Bible. And when I find these kinds of verses in the margin, I write a little D in the margin. So that way I, my mind is triggered to remember this is a verse that's talking about the deity of Jesus. It's exalting Jesus into the position of God. Not like, not like a, a sub-pseudo-God, but he's equated with God the Father. You see, when troubling times come, keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus will bring stability to your heart. It'll bring stability to your heart. Instead of being thrown all over the place, you'll be sure, you'll be steadfast, you'll be secure and sure. It's been said that anxiety and worry are like a rocking chair. You got a lot of action, you got a lot of something, uh, something to do, but you're not really going anywhere. Right? You're just, you just have a lot of action going on. You see, this call to faith is the understanding that Jesus is, in fact, God, equal with the Father. And, and what Jesus essentially is saying is, do you want to know what God's like? Look at me. Look to what I do. Look at how I react. Look at the things that I love. Look at the things that I hate. If you want to know what God is like, look to Jesus. You see, in trouble, in troubling times, your focus naturally goes to the problem, doesn't it? It's, it's like all you can think about. It's the only thing that consumes your thoughts. Your mind is constantly flooded with this problem, and, and it can actually turn into the only thing that you think about, so much so that even blessings overshadowed and are colored gray by this impending doom that's always on your mind. You, you can't rejoice, you can't celebrate, you can't experience the closeness of the Lord because everything in life is defined by this problem. But Jesus is calling us to lift our eyes up, to stop looking at the problem and to start looking at him because faith that is rightly placed is only placed in Jesus. A faith that is rightly placed is only placed in Jesus. That's the only place that faith belongs. And we are tempted, especially in times of trouble, to put our faith in so many other things. That, that our faith can't be in somebody. It can't be in, hey, if I just had a girlfriend, then that would solve my issues. Or if I just got married, then, then that would solve. Anybody got married and thought it would solve your problems and found out that it made them worse? You know what? Maybe if we just had kids, then that would fix the issues. Then you have them, and those heathens break all your stuff and, and uh, won't let you sleep at night, right? And you're like, this is not working. It's not going to be in some leader. They're not going to save you. It's not, the elections are coming. This is an election year. They're not going to save you. I don't care who we elect. They are a sinner. They are broken. They're not going to save you. They're not going to fix your problem. But in our culture today, that's what we look to. We look to someone to save me from my problem. It's not in a circumstance changing. Sometimes we, we have this idea of, of faith being that if I just wait long enough for the circumstance to change, then life will get better. Maybe it won't. Maybe the circumstance isn't going to change. Maybe this situation is going to be with you for the rest of your life. Then what? What do you do with that? 
But what do you do in those kinds of situations? It's not faith in yourself. Well, I just need to pull myself up and have self-esteem and I just need to be courageous and be strong and then things will get better. No, faith that is rightly placed is only placed in Jesus. So that's number one. Refocus number two is to have eternity in Jesus. Look back at verse two. Jesus continues and he says this. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Secondly, Jesus puts the attention and the focus on heaven. He says, not just me, but eternity. Look to heaven. Look to heaven being not, not this fairy tale concept, but a real place that you are really going to. That, that it's, it's this sure and certain hope that we have because when troubling times come, an eternal focus brings perspective to your heart. When you have the right perspective, then you can go through the troubling times with the right attitude, the right kind of heart. You see, this life is, life is temporary. It's like the grass. And we know what that's like, especially here in Colorado where we actually have winters. You know, there are other places like Southern California and Florida. They don't have those. They don't have winter. They say it's winter, but it's just a slightly less hot summer is all it is. And so their grass doesn't fade away, but ours does. It's here today and then it's gone tomorrow. And as we look forward to spring, the grass springs forth and blooms and comes, comes about. And then, you know, winter comes and it all dies again. That's why they call it the dead of winter. You know, that everything goes back into that dead kind of a thing. And Psalm 103, 15 talks about how our life is like the grass. And if, if we're putting everything into right here, right now, everything's about this life and this experience, then I'm forgetting that there's a real heaven and I'm really headed there. I'm really made for more than just right here, right now. Heaven fills your heart with hope. Heaven fills your heart with awe. Heaven fills your heart with wonder and anticipation that this life isn't all there is. And so Jesus promises there in verse three to prepare a place. Do you see that there? I'm gonna go prepare a place for you. He says, I'm gonna come back for you, secondly. And also thirdly, that you will get to be with him. When you think about heaven, I don't know what you think about it. I don't know what, what floods your heart and mind. I don't, I don't know if maybe you watched too many Looney Tune cartoons or whatever, and you think heaven is sitting on a cloud as a fat, winged, diaper baby thing playing a harp. Like, I don't know if that's what you think about when you think about heaven. Uh, if you, like, if that's heaven, I, I, don't want, I don't want that. I don't want to be that weird diaper baby thing. And, and it, that, that just sounds crazy to me. I, like, why would I want that? Why would I want to do that? You see, the thing that makes heaven what it is isn't some weird concept that we have about that. It's that Jesus is there. That's what makes heaven what it is. It's the relationship with Jesus that I get to be with him, that I get to be near to him, that I, I get to look into his face, that I get to talk to him. That's what makes heaven what it is. It's not the streets of gold. It's not the gates that are made of pearls. It's, not, it's none of that stuff. Yeah, that's, that's fun. That's nice. That's cool stuff. It's just to get our, our imagination going in some of those ideas. The thing that makes heaven what it is is that it's Jesus and that he is there. Some people, they don't want anything to do with Jesus or his church and they think that they want to go to heaven. And I'm thinking, what do you, like, why? Heaven is Jesus and his people. And so if, if you don't like Jesus or his people, why in the world would you want to be with Jesus and his people forever? That just doesn't make any sense at all. 
that, that that is the definition of what heaven is. And when you lose heart, it's because your focus has shifted from eternal things to temporal things. That will cause you to lose heart. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says it like this. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Here's the thing. When you get distracted by the here and now, it is always to the detriment of what is eternal and is sure to trouble your heart. You want a sure recipe for getting a troubled heart? Focus on right here, right now. Get everything you can out of this life. Squeeze it for all it's worth. Manipulate, claw, um, get, g- climb your way to the top, cut, cut everybody out as much as you can, make it all about how big your bank account is and how much stuff you have and how many vacations you can go on. Make life about that. It is sure to trouble your heart. You want a case study? Look at any celebrity. They have all the stuff that we think we want, and yet their hearts are perpetually troubled. Jesus moves thirdly to refocus number three in verses four through six to having hope in Jesus. Look at verse four, it says this, and where I go, you know, and the way you know. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going and how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Here in this third refocus, Jesus moves from belief in the distant and the abstract, the idea of of a future hope of heaven, and he moves into the near and specific. He puts the focus back on himself again, because when troubling times come, being secure in who Jesus is and his great ability will bring hope to your heart. When you're Secure in who Jesus is and his great ability, hope floods your heart. Now, I love this in verse 5, what Thomas says. Because he says what we're all thinking and what all the disciples were thinking. I just love that he's willing to say it. Like, I don't get it. What are you talking about, Jesus, is essentially what Thomas has to say. He says, I don't really get what you're saying. Because Jesus says, you know the way. And he's like, nope, I don't know the way, Jesus. I don't know what you're talking about. And so I'm really glad he said that because he fills in the gaps for us. If he didn't say that, I'd be thinking, I don't know the way. I don't know what he's talking about. But Jesus then responds in verse 6 with I am statement number 6 of 7. And just as an aside for the Gospel of John, it's structured around seven I am statements that Jesus makes and seven miracles that Jesus performs. And so as you're reading through, you can see those, and, and that's the structure of the Gospel of John. Here, what we have is the sixth I am statement that Jesus makes of seven. And in this, he, he's pointing to their hope being in him. He says, you've got to put your hope in me. This particular I am statement has three parts, and each of them are exclusive claims. He's not saying I'm one of many, but I'm singular, the one, the only in these things. You see, Jesus didn't say that he would show us a way, but he says that he is the way. Jesus didn't say that he would teach us the truth, but that he himself is the truth. Jesus doesn't say, I have the secrets to life, but he says that he himself is the life. You see, Jesus is the one who exclusively grants access to the Father. And apart from him, there is no hope because Jesus himself is the substance and fullness of what hope is. Romans 5.5 says this about hope. Now, hope does not disappoint 
because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. When you place your hope in Jesus, it's not going to disappoint because it's certain, it's sure, it's secure. It's not, it's not some sort of wavering or wishful thinking kind of like I hope it doesn't snow later on. It's, it's hope that is certain. It's hope that is secure. That's biblical hope. And it's important that this hope is placed in the biblical Jesus. Did you know that, I, 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 maybe you do, maybe you don't, that there is a Mormon Jesus. There is a Jehovah's Witness Jesus. There is a Muslim Jesus. And none of those guys exist. They're all fairy tales. They're all figments of their imagination. They're all religious people that have been made up by some uh, religious construct. They don't, they're not real people. They don't exist. The only Jesus who really is there is the Jesus of the Bible. And so when we're talking about Jesus, we gotta be careful not to think that we're talking about the Mormon Jesus. That guy, he doesn't exist. He's not real. It's the, the Jesus of the Bible. That Jesus brings hope. The Jesus of the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Muslims, that guy brings no hope at all. That guy just looks down upon us in some sort of weird religious way. Refocus number four, verses seven through 11. Have knowledge in Jesus. Verse seven says this, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you, you know him and have seen him. And Philip said, Lord, show us the father and it's sufficient for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so, now so long? And yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Here in this section, Jesus refocuses our attention in this fourth way, and he links the concept of his I am statement that we just read to the knowledge of the Father. Do you see that connection? Do you see the way that it flows together between verses six and seven? That, that Jesus is saying the, this, that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that is connected to knowledge of the, of the Father because when troubling times come, your knowledge of the character and nature of the Father will bring courage to your heart. When you know who God is, then you can go through the trial, through the hardship, through the difficulty with a completely different courage because you know who your God is. You know the kind of God that he is. You know that he is kind, that he will never leave you. He'll never forsake you, that he's the one who has justice, that he's the one who is powerful and merciful and loving and gracious, and he is the one to be feared, that, that when we understand the, the concept of who he is and his character and nature, it gives us courage when we head into trouble. You see, in verse 9, we see that Jesus connects some ideas here. Notice there in verse 9 that he refers to the Father as the Father. Well, previously in verse 7, Jesus refers to the Father as my Father. And now he's transitioning, he's connecting these. He's saying that my Father is your Father. That's what he's connecting the dots for with us. And this is a revolutionary idea. For us in modern Christianity, this may seem like, a yeah, that's, that's one of those things that I know, that God is the Father. But for them, this would have been revolutionary. This wasn't just something that they, they would assume. They would, they would see God as all-powerful. They would see God as sovereign. They would see God as Lord, as king, as master. But they would never presume the, the title of father or dad to put on God. They wouldn't approach God that way. And so Jesus brings them into this deeper kind of a relationship. 
And they knew Jesus, and therefore they knew the Father. That's what Jesus was saying. If you know me, you know the Father, but they had completely missed it. You see, this can be a difficult one for some of us because of a misrepresentation of God that our own fathers have given to us. I don't know what your relationship with your dad is. Maybe you, maybe you think about your father and, and you're filled with excitement and joy. Or maybe, maybe you're like me in that I have a completely broken, disconnected relationship with my father. And that was a hard one for me for many years. That when I read that God is a father, all I saw was the failings of my earthly father. I didn't see who God really was. And so I projected my father's failings on God and said, you must not be good. You must not be right. You must not be awesome. But the, the reality is that it's completely reversed, that God shares his title of father with us. What a crazy thing. I mean, I would understand if God wanted to call me something else, like knucklehead or something like that, but he allows me to have the title father, the same title that he has. What, a, what an amazing thing that God would invite me into that kind of a thing. It's, it's not the other way around that, uh, that I misrepresent God and that's what he's like. It's instead, no, God is Father, and I need to re reflect and project his goodness and his glory. I remember when we, uh, my wife and I, Micah, we were teaching our, our kids about this idea. And uh, we would sit down and we'd say, hey, you belong to the Lord and you're just on loan to God from us. And we just, we, you know, we want to do a great job in raising you in the ways of the, of the Lord. And when they, were, when they were little, they're trying to process this idea. And I remember one time they said, uh, they, were, they were saying, you know, they're at church walking around. They're like, hey, I have two dads. I'm like, no, no, we're not, we're not that kind of church. No, we don't. That's, that's not what it is. And then they were processing it a little bit further, and they go, they go you know what? You're not my real dad. And I'm like, well, no, that, that's, not, that's not really true either. I am your real dad. And they're just trying to process this idea of what does it mean for God to be my father. And, and, and I love just their, the innocence of their little hearts and minds of trying to process this idea. But the truth is that I am just a reflection to my kids of who God is good, bad, or ugly, and no matter how, how well I want to do, I'm not going to represent him perfectly. I'm not going to do the perfect job of, of representing them, representing him to them. In verses 10 and 11, we see the things that Jesus says and does, his words and his works, are in direct connection to his relationship with the Father. They're not separate issues. You see that there in verses 10 and 11? He says uh, that, that the Father's in me, and then he says the stuff that, believe me, if you don't believe me, well, believe me for the sake of the works. The stuff I say and the stuff I do are connected intimately together because knowledge of God is the basis of your relationship with God. It's the fuel of the relationship, isn't it? That your knowledge is the fuel of the relationship. Think about it in, in terms of marriage. I can't say to my wife, hey, I love you, but just don't bother me with any details about your life. I just don't really care. Does that go together? That does not go together. I can't say that. If I love her, then I want to know her. Then I want to dive deeper into relationship with her. And the, the deeper my relationship grows in terms of knowledge, the deeper the relationship grows. You see, when you know your God, he gets larger in your eyes and your problems get smaller and faith overcomes fear by having courage in the Lord. It's about knowing and growing deeper in your knowledge of the Lord. Well, fifthly, our final refocus in verses 12 through 14 is having busyness in the Lord. Let's read verse 12. It says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. 
Jesus here moves uh, his disciples from his works to their works. Not just what I do, but what you do as well. Being busy in the things of the Lord. Because when troubling times come, your pursuit of the work of God and serving others will bring joy to your heart. It'll bring joy to your heart. You ever experience this, that when you do for other people, somehow God meets you in the middle of that and he does for you? You experience what that's like? I hope you have. If you haven't, start serving. Show up early. Set some stuff up. The, the, the thing that's a, 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 an amazing thing that God does is he just serves you in the middle of you serving other people. He somehow fills you. He somehow, he somehow repays you for the things that you do within your soul. And so here's a question I want to ask you. When's the last time you did something for someone who could never repay you? Far too often we, we do things for people kind of thinking, well, maybe they'll do something cool for me too. And, and maybe it's not an active thought, but it's in the back of our heads. When's the last time you served someone who has no means of ever repaying you? If you think, well, I'm just, I'm too busy. I just, you know, I got a lot of things going on in life. I'm just kind of too busy. I think that that thought, I'm too busy, it's usually just a self-centered excuse that we give. Instead, replace that idea of I'm too busy with this. That's not a priority for me. Say that instead. That hurt a little bit? <laughs> or maybe this. You know, I really don't care about that. Now, maybe there are some things that aren't a priority, and that's okay, but be honest with what it is. You're not too busy. We all have the same time. We all have the same uh, amount of time given to us every single day. You don't have more or less than I have, but you, but you do have the opportunity to prioritize some things, and I think sometimes we prioritize the wrong stuff, and then we wonder why our hearts are filled with anxiety and worry and fear and, and a bunch of just busyness in the things that don't matter. If we would reprioritize some things, then it would put our lives in the right order. You see, belief in Jesus will always produce actions like Jesus. That's what he's saying in verse 12. He says, if you believe in me, you're going to do the same stuff that I do, is what Jesus says, and greater works than these you will do. You see, what's in your head affects what's in your heart, and that affects what's in your hands. Whatever you think affects what you believe, and it turns into what you do. And that's also true in the negative. You see, when, whenever you sin, you don't have an action problem. You don't have an activity issue with sin. You have a belief problem. Every single time we sin, it's always a belief issue. It's always an issue of me believing wrong. And if you want to change what you do, change what you believe. And when you come to terms with what you actually believe, it'll change what you do. You can say all day long, you can quote all the verses and tell me all the theology about what you say you believe, but if your actions are off, I'll tell you this, you don't really believe it. If you actually believe it, it'll change what you do. You don't have a, an action problem, you have a belief problem. And so Jesus is calling us into this kind of deeper belief. My, my wife and I, we travel uh, you know, around from time to time, and we love hotels. I don't know if you love hotels, but my wife has a, a thing with hotels. And so uh, part of our deal is whenever we travel is she gets to figure out what hotel we're going to be in and, and do all the research and stuff like that and figure it out. And one of the, the greatest things about hotels is especially when you're staying there for a number of days is, you know, you leave and it's kind of a chaotic mess and you come back and it's like there's fresh towels and the bed is made and 
you know, the, uh, I remember there's one place where they like turn on the TV to this music and it's all, oh, you know, when you come in and it's all glorious and you're like, this is amazing. And you were just walking into this, this hotel. It's just this, this great thing. Well, here, I want to I ask you a question about this. And this one might hurt a little bit. How do you treat the church? Do you treat the church like a hotel? Or do you treat the church like your home? Do you come in expecting all the stuff to be set up and where's my, my coffee is not hot? Why is my coffee not hot? And where's the, where's the warm towel for me to wipe off my face? And, you know, I'll just, I'll take communion and I'll throw my trash on the floor. Someone, I have people for that. They'll get that and I'll throw a little tip in the basket as I leave. Or is it like your home? Is it like your home? If you don't clean it, who's going to clean it? If you don't pick it up, who's going to pick it up? If you don't pay the bills, who's going to pay the bills? Like, how do you treat the church? Is it like a hotel? Or is it like your home? Now, Jesus says in verse 12, because. Do you see that there in verse 12? He says, greater works than these you will do because I go to my Father. You see, what they dreaded the most is the very means by which Jesus does his best. Jesus says the cross, the way of the cross, is how I'm going to establish and advance my church. And they're saying, Jesus, don't leave us. Don't abandon us. We need you, Jesus. And he says, no, this is the way I've got to go. I need to leave because that's how I'm going to do my best. And he sacrifices himself for the benefit of others and then calls us to the same thing. He says, I'm going to be sacrificial with my life and I'm going to call you into that same kind of sacrificial service. Now, this idea of greater works, it's not an extent, you know, that Jesus says, hey, I raised two guys from the dead, you better do three. Or I walked on the water, you need to hover above the water. Or I fed 5,000, you're up for 10,000. Like, that's not what Jesus is talking about when he says you're going to do greater works. It's not greater in extent, but greater in reach. Because when Jesus ascended into heaven, the very next thing that happened was he sent the helper, the Holy Spirit. And in the Holy Spirit, not just being in Jesus, in one man, in one place, on, uh, on the planet at one time, now the Holy Spirit is in all of his people across the entire planet, serving and reaching and pushing the kingdom of God forward. So it's not extent that Jesus is talking about, it's reach that Jesus is talking about. Verses 13 and 14, Jesus says, he says this crazy thing that, you know, if you ask anything in my name, then, then I'll do it. And, you know, I'm, uh, you know a lot of people, they, they misinterpret this idea and they don't, they don't get what it's talking about. Essentially, what this is not is not that you get to stamp in Jesus' name at the end of your prayer and now God is obligated to do whatever it is that you said. It's not like God's in heaven wringing his hands saying, don't say in Jesus' name, don't say in Jesus' name. Oh, they said it. Now I got to do it. That, that, is, that is not the way, it's not magic fairy dust that you sprinkle on your prayer and now God's got to do things, right? What this is saying, what Jesus is saying is, that when you, are, um, when you are praying in his name, it's the, the idea of putting it in terms of his character. It's asking for things that are in line with who he is. And contextually, what are we talking about? What's Jesus saying? He's talking about working for the glory of his kingdom. And so when Jesus is, is saying, you can ask anything in my name, he's not just saying, you know, well, I, Lord, I pray that you would allow me to be the ruler of the world in Jesus' name. And then, oh, no, he's got to do it. He's saying, if you will pray in my name, and the context is working for him and for his glory, he is ready to rush into that. As well, one of the amazing things that I think that we have to process with this is that there are multiple answers to our prayers. Yes is not the only valid answer to your prayer. God can say no. 
Have you ever, you ever been blessed by God saying no to your prayers afterward? You realize it? You know, you pray for this. You're so, God, I need this. God, do this for me. God, make this happen. And then you get on the other side of it and you're like, Lord, I'm so glad you ignored me my prayer for that. If I, if I had it my way, I would wreck my life. But Lord, sometimes he says no. And sometimes God says, wait. Sometimes God says, wait. My oldest daughter, she's 15 now, but I remember when she was about 18 months old, I did what every godly uh, man would do in discipling their kids. I started feeding her steak. And so, you know, I'm sitting her on my lap and, and I'm, I'm cutting up some, some of this meat and I'm, I'm, you know, feeding it to her. And uh, she's just like, you know, her, her eyes are lighting up. This is like glory. I can't, I can't believe you haven't given me this before. Dad, what, what is going on? And so, you know, she's sitting on my lap and she realizes that I'm holding something in my hands. And she thinks, dad's using these. I should be able to use them as well. And so she reaches out to grab the knife. And, you know, I just handed it to her. And, you know, she grabbed it. And she's just, you know, stabbing. No, she didn't. I didn't hand her the knife, okay? You're like getting your phone out, CPS. I got to call them right now. Like, you know, no, I didn't hand her the knife. Like any good dad, I held the knife and the fork away from her, right? Because it's damaging, it's, it's deadly for her, maybe even for me at this point. Who knows what she's going to do with it. And she, like any 18-month-old, threw a fit and was screaming like I was some sort of evil maniac. And why, why would you withhold blessing from me, Dad? Why would you not give me the knife that I so desperately need? And so I, I stopped her crying by giving her more steak. And she chewed that and she was content for a minute until she realized she wanted the knife again. You see, now, today, as a 15-year-old, I don't cut her steak for her. I say, here, kid, you figure it out. You're big enough to do it. The thing that was a detriment and dangerous and life-threatening for her then is now a blessing. There are some things that God will not give you today because you need to grow up a little bit, because you need to mature some, because if he gave it to you today, it would take your life. But tomorrow, when you develop and mature a little bit, it can actually be a blessing for you. And so there are some things that maybe you, th you look at and you say, this could be a great blessing for me, but the Lord hasn't given it to you because it's time to mature. As we wrap up all of this, you know, one of the, the last thoughts I want to leave you with is that those who complain the most are typically those who do the least. Those who complain the most are typically those who do the least because their eyes are focused on themselves, their glory, their comfort. That's all they think about. And Jesus calls us to refocus, shifting our eyes off of our problems and shifting our eyes onto him and onto eternity. It's vital to overcoming a troubled heart instead of allowing the troubled heart to overcome us. If you're focused on being a victim, then you'll be good for complaining and you'll be good for excuses, but you probably won't be good for much else. Instead of focusing on being a victim, focus on being more than a conqueror in Christ. Focus on his victory for you and for me. You see, difficulty comes to us all, but a troubled life doesn't automatically mean that you've got to have a troubled heart. And Jesus is calling you to control your heart instead of letting your heart be troubled. Refocus and get your eyes on Jesus the first and most important step to this is recognizing Jesus' sacrifice for you, that Jesus bled, that Jesus died, that Jesus rose from the dead for you, to pay the price for your sin, to bring you into his family, to adopt you as his own. And that is the first and most vital step. But hey, here's the thing. We never graduate from that. 
We come back to that over and over and over again in our Christianity. It's like what Third, uh, First John chapter three verse one says: "Behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us, that we could be the sons of God." So I pray that today, as we close and as we uh, look at, have taken a time to look at John fourteen, that you would not have a troubled heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your great love for us. Thank you for your word and the opportunity to study it together. We pray today that as we, as we lift our eyes to you, as we see you for who you are, that we would be able to do what your word says, that we wouldn't let our hearts be troubled, and that that wouldn't just be some sort of thing that we try to say that we're going to do by our strength, by our power, by our ability, but that we would look to you, Jesus, as the author and the finisher of our faith, the one who began our faith and the one who carries it to completion. And so, Father, we pray today that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would fill us with faith in you, and that you would cause us to grow more into your image. We pray this together in Jesus' name. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.